You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Someday you will face the unimaginable. It is physically impossible to avoid it. Stuff this sauce. You can see things you shouldn't be able to. If I show you what's in this container, you'll never feel at one with the human race. I realized all at once my one chance to save the universe lay inside this bottle. It'd be opening doors the other world's mind. What is that stuff, John? The soy sauce? That stuff. I'm remembering things that haven't happened yet. We were chosen by the soy sauce. So you guys are what? Some kind of spiritualist exorcist? Something like that. The director of Phantasm and Bubba Hotel. I suppose you are wondering where you are. I'm going to guess we're in an alternate universe of some kind. <laughs> To brandish your weapons. Can uh, I buy you a beer? Lock your doors. What the? That's the axe that slayed me. And stay away. Ooh. From red meat. Ah. Uh, right. But whatever you do. Don't spoil the ending. I suppose you're wondering why I'm here. I suppose you're wondering what I'm doing with this can of gasoline. Projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Stashu. I'm here. That's for sure. Also with us this week is Mr. Thomas Barker. That is not dead, which can eternal lie, and in strange eons, even John may die. This week we are discussing the 2012 film from director Don Coscarelli, John Dies at the End. Oh, spoilers. Yes, there are going to be spoilers galore in the as we discuss this film that's based on the book by David Wong. The film stars Chase Williamson as a character named David Wong, while Rob Mays plays the titular John. The two are some sort of spiritual exorcist thanks to the experiences they've had with the drug called soy sauce. Actually, not real soy sauce. It's kind of a portal to another world. Chris... When was the first time you saw John Dies at the End, and what did you think? Probably a year after it came out. Uh, and I remember hearing about the book before I saw the movie. From what I remember from skimming the book when the book first came out and then watching the movie, there's a lot of differences towards the end of the book versus the way that the movie ends up playing out. And I think that that works in the movie's favor because there's a lot of stuff in the book that's a little more works better in a 
narrative sense in in a in a book rather than a film and i think that the end of the film kind of falls flat a little bit but outside of the third act of the film being a little bit of a dud the movie sticks pretty true to the book you know it's not exactly a bad thing i enjoy it it's it's an interesting film it's definitely my favorite don coscarelli film that's for sure i believe i saw it about uh, two years ago it was on netflix for a while um and yeah like chris I, you know, I used to go and sort of, you know, surf around the cracked.com website quite a bit. So I knew, I knew about quote unquote, uh, David Wong and, uh, John Cheese, you know, whose namesake is in the, is in the book slash film. Yeah. I saw it and yeah, Chris t- took the words out of my mouth about the way I, I sort of felt about the film and then looking at the book and just sort of trying to gin up for, for doing this episode the huge differences and yeah, all the little touches that work, you know, like um, different spellings and little touches that sort of work uh, very different in a literary context. But yeah, it would, it would have been on Netflix and you know, I've, I've always sort of, it's, it's stuck in my mind. Definitely. What about you, Mike? <laughs> well, I remember when this was playing at Sundance uh, and was it Sun- Yeah, it was Sundance and just the news out of Sundance. That's one of the, good slash annoying things about Facebook is that you get to read about all of these people's experiences with these films when they go to these festivals, at least with me having so many people that are interested in movies on my feed. Surprising. People were just falling all over themselves to talk about how amazing this movie was and to the point where I was afraid that it was being built up too much in my mind. Like there's no way that this is going to live up to the hype. Kind of like when I, saw human centipede for the first time and (laughs) catching this i i think i managed to get a download of it a few months later and fortunately it actually lived up to expectations uh i agree with you guys that it kind of peters out at the end uh i saw this purely as a movie first and then i've only recently picked up the book and finally read it i haven't read the sequel books or anything yet um but uh, I, I wanted to experience this more as a movie than as a book. As a book, I have to say it's uh, pretty interesting as well. Uh, we'll definitely talk about some of the differences as we go along. But I think that Coscarelli, who did the adaptation of this, did a terrific job of adapting the story. And I really like the way that he takes us into the story that – yeah, because there's there's one main well there's almost two main narratives. I mean the book itself is broken into at least two parts. I mean we start off with this whole ship of Theseus uh, uh, philosophical question as far as if you replace all of the parts on a boat, is it still the same boat? And in this case, if you replace the handle and the axe head of an axe, is it still the same axe? I like the way that he frames the story with that, and then. We go from that to the Chinese restaurant where we're introduced to David Wong and we're introduced to Arnie Bloodstone, the Bloodstone, the character played by Paul Giamatti. And then we're taken into the whole Meat Man story uh, that he tells. Looking at it, it's just like, okay, I'm not really sure exactly where this comes in the narrative as far as how they know Marconi. And we don't really get that backstory, which is good, but we get to see them in action. All of these sequences are being cut together so masterfully to me. I think they're really well done. And then after that, we finally get into the story proper 
And once he kind of starts telling this story, David Wong starts telling this story of how they got involved with this drug soy sauce. And then that's kind of more of our narrative thread there. But we're like, what, 20 minutes, 15 minutes into the movie before we actually start the movie proper. But all of these other things add up to making this a much more rich story. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a wealth of stuff that sort of, you know, hits you quite quickly, especially that that opening scene with the, you know, like you said, the, the ship of Theseus axe thing with the, you know, just the gorgeous, um, you know, the snow, that pristine snow and coming out. Yeah, I, I did find it a little bit frustrating, never wanting to be that kind of person, although they proliferate on the internet, who's like sort of pedantic about, well, how do they know Marconi? Oh, how does that fit into this? Is all oh, this world isn't internally consistent. But I did, I remember the first time I watched it, I did, I was uh, scratching my head a little bit a bit until things finally sort of got racing with the, yeah, with the story proper. I, I feel like at the beginning of the film, the film almost doesn't care about whether or not you understand what's going on. It doesn't explain to you what's going on until like a third of the way through the film. Those first couple scenes are meant to be, I guess, intentionally confusing and kind of, I guess, out of order as well. Does the Meat Man story take place before the soy sauce or after? Like, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't understand. I, I, I assumed it took place after. Once the film is over and you kind of see how everything plays out, that seems to be taking place not in chronological timeline with everything else that's going on again which would make sense but also would be again confusing for anyone watching the film for the first time yeah yeah <laughs> well it kind of works with the whole idea of the soy sauce itself because that kind of opens up time to being a much more fluid thing i mean the name in the movie is john dies at the end but really he doesn't die until 30 minutes in maybe 40 minutes in and then he doesn't die at the end so really if we we would have to reshuffle everything if he actually were to die at the end but um yeah time is very very fluid in this i mean there's a a point where we are going pretty much in chronological order for the most of the movie but yeah these these scenes at the beginning like this is david wong narrating the the act story and he's participating in the act story. So we don't know when that is. And that is, uh, <laughs> I think that's rather masterful as well. Him saying, you know, imagine if, if this happens, but it's him doing it. So where does that necessarily fit in the narrative? And again, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It's mostly just to set up tone and some of these characters. Yeah, I would imagine that the Marconi thing has happened more recently, this call, because they have a connection with this guy now, more to just say, this is the kind of stuff that we deal with. Hmm. You make a good point. And I've just realized something. In fact, my bad for taking taking things maybe a little bit too much at face value, because I was very disappointed when I, I took a look at the sequel to this book, and in fact, it was not full of spiders. So, yeah, no, oh. good point. And I'll, um, yeah, but um, but uh, yeah, fair enough. It's it's tonal rather than you know trying to con- yeah trying to sort of play around with consistency and things. I'll tell you one thing that confused the hell out of me, probably for the first the first uh, three times that I saw this was. Uh, in that Marconi slash Meatman story that we have, 
Uh, that is uh, David Wong going over to his friend John Cheese's house, and uh, there's a girl there. And now the girl is a character named Shelly. And I thought this, – now this really confuses the narrative. I thought Shelly was the same character as Amy, who we meet later in the film. So I was really confused as far as the timeline goes. Uh, because these are two attractive young ladies with long black hair. I did not know that they were two different characters until probably second time before last that I watched this. So I really was just like, okay, why, why is this character here and over there? And now is she dead and what is happening? So that, that was really confusing to me. And it seems that, even the one of the girls that is there when we meet uh, this Robert Marley character at a party, which is kind of our first scene of the the movie proper, quote unquote, she's got long black hair too. And for a second, I was like, "Is that the same girl?" But no, it's very different girls, but they all just look kind of the same to me. Watching this film for the first time or second time, the first couple scenes are not really going to make a whole lot of sense. With kind of the way that they frame the first scenes versus like when you said when the film quote unquote actually starts, it's again, I think it's just intentionally confusing and it's intentionally vague. And I guess it's set up so that maybe you catch it the second time or third time you watch it as opposed to the first time. Because the first time that I watched this film, I I absolutely had no idea what was going on until the film settled into the plot, which, again, like you said, is, is literally like 25 minutes into this movie. If you have a problem with a film that takes a while to get going, you're not going to like this film because this film doesn't hit the actual plot until 25 minutes in. And and yet there's so much to, you know, to, to feast your eyes on. It's certainly not I wouldn't by any means call it a slow film. You know, there's 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 so much to, you know, to to focus on and to look at, you know, especially from a visual standpoint and from a visual effects standpoint. So, you know, it would be a. It's a very small quibble indeed, I guess, if the, um, you know, if you're worried specifically about the plot, because it's, you know, there's so much going on. It doesn't feel like we're just waiting for things to happen at any point in this movie. And that's one of the things I appreciate about it is just how fast it moves and how much is going on. And this is it's pretty much a feast for the eyes as well. It it looks gorgeous. It is shot really well. The camera work is fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the audio mix is wonderful in here as well. And there's so many things. We're being told the story both literally and and filmically through David Wong. You know, he is telling this story to this Arnie Bloodstone character in this Chinese restaurant. Um, there's that level of narration. And then there's also just that we see everything through his eyes, um, not literally it's not all pov shots but there are a lot of pov shots and when they're done they're almost always through his eyes even when it comes to these things like that uh the meat man story there's this whole thing about how these demons will take the form of uh things that are appealing to the characters so uh he sees this woman in one way and John sees the woman in another way. We never see how John sees the woman. We only see how David sees the woman. So we're really making sure that we are identifying with him as our protagonist. 
it's great too because we know he's an unreliable narrator because one of the first things that he does with Artie Bloodstone is talk about his mother and how his mother was a Satan worshiper. My biological mom, she was institutionalized. Must have been hard. She was a strung out, crank addicted cannibal, dabbled in vampirism and necromancy. Blew her welfare check every month on black candles. Really? I thought my mom was bad because she wouldn't let me watch Space Ghost. You pulling my leg? No, this is just what I do when I get nervous. Um, she was bipolar, that's all. Couldn't keep a house. But uh, isn't the other story better, though? I think you should use that. And, you know, we are still, though, like you say, with the way that the shots are set up, we are being, I feel, compelled to identify with David because I, I'm pretty sure, the, in fact, the first time we see him, he looks straight to camera. You know, there's there's already that little moment of, of breaking the fourth wall right from the get go when we see David. Yeah, and we get a lot of shots of him where he's kind of experiencing the drug as well. And again, it feels like we're a little bit closer than a close up. You know, these <laughs> kind of more shots of his eyes, shots of his face as he's experiencing the effects of the drugs. And just so many great facial expressions. I think this is Chase Williamson's first feature film appearance. And he is right there going toe to toe with Clancy Brown, Paul Giamatti, all these actors. And I thought he did a terrific job with it. I mean, the whole film hinges on his performance, right? So if he wasn't compelling as a character with the film being a little narratively disjointed on purpose, it probably would have been, you know, the film might have lost casual viewers relatively early in without a compelling performance from the lead. I think he did, I think he's really good. I think he's one of the better parts of the film. I don't think he's the best part of the film, but I think he's one of the better parts of the film, that's for sure. And he's much better than the actor who plays John because I feel like John is the weakest, one of the weaker characters in the film. I never really get a bead on John. Like he's supposed to be the crazy friend. Like that's how he's kind of introduced is like, it feels like there's a couple things going on with John. Like the first time we hear from him is on the telephone uh, when he calls up Dave and he gives him this coded message uh, to come over to his place and pick up some beer on the way over. So it's like, and then when we meet him, he's wearing these obviously fake glasses to talk to this girl that we'll call Shelly and it feels like okay he's just scamming on this girl he wants to sleep with this girl eventually he wants to be her hero save the day and then have sex with her we don't really get a whole lot of of characterization of this guy and it just feels like he should be a little bit crazier but he's not and I never really feel like I know this John character Mm. I mean, in the book, he, uh, you know, the the fact that he introduces David, well, or at least we're led to believe that he does uh, to the soy sauce. Well, no, he, not him, you know, directly. Um, but there's also a lot of other references to him being a real, you know, he takes a lot of drugs. He does, you know, he's completely unreliable. He, you know, shows up late to work. He looks like, because I think his background is sort of in modeling and things, and he, he does have that sort of. He, he looks a bit too clean cut almost to to be, you know, apart from when he, he's got that sort of nice moment when he's in the band. But yeah, no, he, he yeah, he's definitely not as compelling as David. Yeah, Rob Mays is the guy's name. And yeah, he's very, very attractive man. And <laughs> I'm glad you said yeah, it. I, just, was, I was thinking about it. It feels like he is kind of the character that could just skate through life and 
nothing will ever affect him, which I suppose is what John is. You know, he can, he can take this soy sauce drug, which is causing some people to explode and, but it doesn't affect him that way. And he's able to die basically and come back to life because he's that way. He just, he's one of these people that, um, he's Teflon. He'll, he'll never get affected by stuff. He'll just do what he wants, but he, he doesn't seem as shallow maybe as he should. So I don't, I don't know, Mm. but yeah, I can, the thing, I don't really have a problem with the character. I just never really get a bead on the character. So that's good for me that David is so prominent in the story because John, even though he's the titular John, that he's not there. We're not supposed to identify with him that much. So I'm glad that, um, David is such a strong character, so I don't sit there and go, wow, I wish I knew more about this John guy. That may have been an intentional choice by um, Rob Mays, because he does mention in the commentary that he he himself believes that John is actually a figment of Dave's imagination. So there may be, you know, out, you know, something of that belief might show through in the performance. I think it also helps that Dave is going toe-to-toe, like I said earlier, with all of these great character actors. I mean, there are so many good actors in this film. I mean, Paul Giamatti, Clancy Brown, Glenn Turman, Doug Jones, Daniel Roebuck. I mean, these guys are all so good. And I I mean, Clancy Brown, he's in the movie for (laughs) what five minutes, but his presence is there throughout this entire film because he's there at that beginning story. We see little bits and bobs of, of his commercials throughout the rest of it. And then when he shows up at the end, he's just as cool as cool can be. I, I love every time that he's on screen. Don't forget Angus Scrim. As if the nod to Phantasm was not needed in a Don Cascarelli film. But he's there. He, he Father Shellnut. That's also a good moment how he's talking to Scrim on the phone and then he feels the, you know, this is David we're talking about. And then he gets dosed by the soy sauce and then things just turn to shit. (laughs) 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 Just the way that Scrim is just like, well, you realize you're fucked. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, once we get into the story proper, introduced to this drug, the soy sauce, and we come to it through this character of Robert Marley. Again, a great performance, a small role, but a great performance. And it takes us into this whole adventure of this drug that is really, it's a sentient drug. It wants to be taken and it wants to find a host that, as far as I'm concerned, uh, somebody, I don't know, worthy enough, but powerful enough, I suppose, to be able to cross over from one dimension to another dimension. But we don't really even get that whole dimensionality until the third act of the film. For the rest of it, it is more something bad is happening. We're not exactly sure what. So we're as confused as our characters, which I think actually kind of works. And this plays kind of like a detective story throughout the rest of the film, where it's there's one antagonist who's named Shitload because he's kind of like Legion. There's a, a ton of these creatures inside of him, um, bad creatures. And then there's also the detective uh, who's played by Glenn Turman. Obviously, David doesn't want to go to jail, and he's afraid that this detective is going to uh, take him to jail. And at one point, the detective shoots him, which is a, a fantastic sequence. Um, so he's just kind of like that 
almost film noir detective where you're on the outs of the rest of the world and you're trying to solve this mystery and you're trying to do it despite the police who are muddling things up more than clearing things up. And uh, Terman is, is <laughs> he's muddling things up so much that he's actually going in and burning uh, down the crime scene. Uh, probably my favorite sequence of the film. You don't know if he's necessarily being put off the case by these other people like the Roger North character who's played by Doug Jones. The Roger North character is probably one of those confusing characters that there is in the film, but I still like his presence. I still like his role because he shows up. He basically, he doesn't really have anything to say, anything to do, but just uh, introduces this uh, creature that um, is, uh, uh, can bite pretty uh pretty well <laughs> they they get a lot of good use out of that particular puppet or you know actual effect it shows up and i think it's it's the thing at the beginning with the axe and then yep. it turns up at the very end of the film they yeah they um they're really economical with that um but it's such a great and speaking of speaking of roger north and doug jones yeah he's one of the you know i mean you don't need me to say it but he's one of these actors that Whenever he's in a film, I'm I'm just happy to see him, whether or not he's covered in, in layers of, of prosthetics and, you know, animatronics and stuff, or just showing that just his features are so singular and, you know, so, so wonderful to watch. And that moment when, um, you know, when he just, he starts, he just has that one tear trickling down his face when he's, oh, when he's yeah. sitting in the back of the, um, in the back of the Bronco. Um, yeah, just, and like you say, he, Again, at that point, it's all very confusing, but somehow, again, it's not, you know, style over substance is not the word I want to use, but it's just the the aesthetic of the whole thing is so pleasing. You kind of don't really care that you're not sure what's happening yet. And I think that applies to a fair bit of this film if you're seeing it for the first time and you're confused. I think my issue with Doug Jones's character is that at, he ends up factoring into the third act of the film, and the third act of the film is so disappointing and rushed that his character is great in the initial scene in the Bronco, but then when he comes back, it's just it's a little bit diminishing returns because you're like, okay, well, he's here for like two seconds, and I would have liked to have seen more of his character, but the second act of the film is definitely the strongest act uh, including the my favorite scene in the film, which is when David is lying on the ground contemplating how he's going to avoid being shot, which that whole scene is is by far the best scene in the film for me. It's the it's the smartest, funniest kind of existential scene in the film. And when the third act of the film ends up rolling around, it just I, maybe this film just kind of. I don't know, maybe this film kind of wears down the audience a little bit. That might be it. But I feel like what the actual situation with the film is, is that the payoff is not as good as everything that's led up to the payoff. The payoff falls a little flat because when kind of the when the twist is revealed, I guess, as to what's actually going on, it's not particularly exciting. Yeah, I actually almost found the 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 other twist with with Arnie, at you know, which occurs even later on, even though technically in terms of, you know, universe shattering significance, it doesn't factor as largely, but I actually found that a lot more interesting and satisfying than the sort of, you know, this, this sort of crazy story about, you know, a parallel universe that splits off in the 19th century. 
Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the third act because I agree that, that there are things that I think could have been done to set things up a little bit better. I mean, throughout the rest of the, we're dealing with for, well, first we're dealing with Justin, AKA shitload. And he's a, to me, he's a pretty good villain because he's one of these, uh, white rapper type guys. who's just like, yo man, we got all kinds of shit going on. And just the way that he, I mean, cause those type of people are annoying enough and then add to the fact that he is being possessed by a horde of demons makes it even worse. And so I think he's a great villain. And then at one point he dies and the creatures inside of him migrate into our, our poor detective. We've got that going on, but yeah, as we move forward into the third act, we find that our true antagonist is this creature named Korok but we don't necessarily get Korok, his presence throughout the rest of the film. So it, it feels very much like, and here's this guy. And you're like, oh, okay, this is the real baddie. You know, he's the boss at the end of, of the video game. But yeah, we don't know that, that this guy's even out there until right before the end of the film. So it's like, okay, um, it doesn't feel like he's some sort of puppet master who is you know, manipulating all of these things. It just, it feels kind of weird. Like, and it, it doesn't feel like he has a, a plan. Like, like Korok is trying to escape from this dimension and take over our dimension. It just feels like he's there. Okay. I'm not really feeling that he was connected to the rest of the story. Now in the book, there are mentions of Korok, a little bit earlier on, but still it's not like he is pervasive in the rest of the film or in the rest of the book. So even if the meat man had been an agent of Korok or something like just to <laughs> introduce the word a little bit earlier than it is in the film. And yeah, the third act too. I mean, it, it is, it's basically this huge expositional dump. I mean, at least it's being done by Daniel Roebuck, who I absolutely love. And Roebuck is wearing this crazy mask. He's surrounded by uh, half naked women and he's doing this terrific voice where he's explaining <laughs> these things. Your world, you see, is a twin to our own. Dual offspring born of the same litter. What? Up until this point, our histories were identical. There was a man named Cyrus Rooney from Tennessee. In your world, he died at the age of 17, gored to death while trying to crossbreed a bull with a Clyde's tail. In our world, the man survived. Here, Cyrus Rooney was a genius. He continued to experiment in what he called bestiology. He is great, and he's he's hypnotizing to me. But yeah, he's just like, okay, and then this happened, and then this happened, and, he, and not only are they doing it through charts and graphs, <laughs> but there's even an animated sequence to show us kind of, I guess, how Korok operates. So it's just kind of weird. Like, I don't even get that. Like, I, I read that part in the book last night. And I'm just like, okay, well, there's Korok, but then there's these spider things, and I'm not really sure how the two of them are necessarily connected. Because it seems like Korok, who is this huge, sentient, computer-type creature, that he uh, gets his knowledge by basically absorbing living material. So kind of like the brain bug in Starship Troopers, he'll, he'll eat the bodies of people and gain their knowledge through that. 
I guess, you know, all of these things have big question marks after them because I'm just like, I'm not really sure exactly how this works, even though Daniel Roebuck is there to tell me a lot of this stuff, but he doesn't necessarily tell me the inner workings of Korok. Not that I'm asking for that either. You know, the the film, and I think the book as well, you know, just looking at, at sort of reviews and sound bites about it the two there's always like two words that are tossed around oh this is like a combination of you know douglas adams and hp lovecraft or well not necessarily terry pratchett but you know some sort of humorous author with ideas bursting out of everywhere and then some dark cosmic horror and you know i think that really comes out in in the you know in the third act of the film and um you know i found it interesting but like just because it's so disconnected or feels so disconnected from the previous parts of the movie, it, it drags and it slows down. But I find, I find myself thinking, well, I could watch a whole something, some kind of, maybe not a whole film, but something just about this story. And yet it's, it's sort of weirdly, it's sewn on like the zombies head in the first part of the movie to, to the rest of the film. And so it's, it's individually interesting, but it's somehow less than the sum of its parts. Because it's a cool story, you know, with the weird and um, the way they present it with with the animation and the sort of bizarre, the plane sort of stapled onto birds and the weird animal hybrids. It's it's cool, but just, yeah, less than the sum of its parts somehow. That's the coolest fucking story I've ever heard in my entire life. That's insane. The large man character should have been re-nicknamed Exposition Man. Because, I mean, that is his whole purpose in the end of the film, is literally to be what would amount to several pages in the book of explanation of what's going on. And that's it. It feels like the third act of the film is a little rushed, honestly. Just the way that it's like, and here's how everything ties up, and here's what Korok is, and here's how this alternate universe exists, and there you go. And then Korok is dead ten minutes later. It's like you said, Mike, the character of Korok, we're not given a reason to understand why he's such a cool bad guy. We're not given any villain motivation for the character. It's just like, here's Korok. He existed because of the alternate universe. And this guy made him the end. And literally the end, because the movie ends like five minutes later. And again, this is something that I was just like, well, I could handle a movie more about this as well. That that weird moment after they defeat Korok and they're playing basketball and this portal to another dimension shows up and they go through the portal and it seems like they're in this post-apocalyptic world and there's the the woman who is like oh you too you're unmarked and dies on the spot and these two you know space rangers come down and the one guy just starts unloading all of this again exposition onto them and they're just like yeah yeah whatever and they just go back to their own universe (laughs) so it's like okay well that that was an interesting aside. Um, and again, I could have handled more exploration of that. The other thing that that's kind of interesting to me too, is the whole idea of when they show up in the large man slash Korox universe. Well, we never necessarily know why they're wearing all these masks and stuff, but there's the whole thing of them going into this, what looks like a church to me and sitting on these thrones and there are all of these things that say Dave and John and there are murals everywhere of them and their adventures. And it's just like, so in large man says, you know, it it was prophesized that you would show up and I'm just like, okay, this is kind of interesting, but we don't necessarily get that connection either. So I don't know. There's, it feels like there's a lot more to this stuff that I would have been okay with exploring. 
it's just kind of rushed. It's like, okay, here you are. All right, here's this animated film. I love the timeline sequence where they're talking about how in our timeline, this one character dies, but in their timeline, he lived and he invented airplanes, invented computers, and they were so far advanced uh, 20th century than we were. And it was all through this, like, biological stuff. I mean, almost like a a Cronenbergian universe where it's like, oh yeah, we don't have computers made out of, uh, and you know, metal, they're actually made out of living sentient, you know, brains. And they're so much better than the computers that you have in, in your world. But again, it's just like, and we're going to rush past this and here's Korok and now he's dead. And here's the end of the story. And the dog kills him, which is good because I'm glad they introduced the dog fairly early on and the dog stays throughout all of the rest of the film the dog really is almost our protagonist at this point marconi actually says that that john and david were really only there to like make sure the dog did what it needed to do right so you, you're absolutely right the dog really is the the linchpin to the whole movie yeah because the dog is under the influence of the soy sauce as well so the dog knows what he needs to do, and John and David essentially exist to, like Marconi said, protect the dog and essentially be distractions. They're just there to help shepherd in Barkley into this universe. But yeah, there is that nice twist at the end. The one thing that we won't give away is the very end twist with uh, the Paul Giamatti character. I really like that and i think that that is a good ending to the story just because of the way that we talked about the beginning of the story being set up and the way that especially the way that giamatti's character shows up i find was interesting because dave is so out of it and at one point he looks over and giamatti is just sitting there and he's just like oh did you you fall asleep there (laughs) (laughs) just fucking i i love paul giamatti i mean i have loved that guy since I first saw him in private parts and every time he's in something, even if it's a shitty movie, uh, even if it's the illusionist, I still (laughs) love him in the movie. So it's not like I'm rushing out to see sideways or anything, but I will say that he fucking made duets. And if people haven't seen duets, uh, he, he fucking rocks in that movie. So just, I'm going to put that out there right now. So, but yeah, he is always a pleasure to watch. And in this film, it is no less. And, and the coolest thing too, you were talking about the audio commentary is finding out the role that Giamatti played behind the scenes, that it was actually his production company that helped bring John dies at the end to the screen because he is a sci-fi nut. I mean, I know that he wanted to make a biopic of uh, uh, Philip K. Dick. I don't know where we're at with that at the moment, uh, but if he knows who Philip K. Dick is and is a fan, I mean, that's a pretty good sign right there that uh, he's an okay dude. Uh, reviewers who who absolutely hated this film still had some good thing, you know, had some good things to say about Paul Giamatti. Um, you know, which maybe speaks to some other sort of preoccupations that people have, but yeah, he was great. And it's such a, you know, as he tends to, he had that, uh, you know, he's even referred to, I think as sort of being rumpled. He's got that. He sort of is the, the most grounded or at least, you know, until the twist at the end, the most sort of grounded seeming character in the, in the film. 
I like the twist with this character at the end, but I honestly like the the twist that the dog is the protagonist in the entire film more. The twist with Paul Giamatti's character, we've seen stuff like that before, and like it's kind of it has I wouldn't say it's been done to quote death, but we've seen similar twists in similar films before. So when it turns out that the dog is the protagonist of the film, I think for me that was a little bit more surprising because I don't even think that that's I don't remember that being the case in the book. I think that that's that is solely for the film. Well, in the book, there's that weird thing where Fred Durst shows up from Limp Biscuit, and at one point he says, I've dogged you through this whole thing. So as if to imply that he was in the book, it's Molly, it's not Barkley, that he was the dog throughout the rest of the story. And it's just like, what? It makes as much sense as anything else in the book, but Fred Durst was the dog the whole time. And in the book, because we haven't really talked about the book a whole lot, in the book, David's character is the one that dies and gets replaced, which is the which is kind of funny because that's the ship of Theseus kind of narrative from the beginning of the film that they never really touch on in the in the and they never really touch on that in the book as much as they do in the film. And then they don't have that whole thing with David's character dying and being replaced by another David. And he doesn't even realize it. So he was actually cloned by the Jackal. Is that right? Oh, wait, no, I'm thinking Peter Parker. Sorry. That's the whole kind of third act in the book is like he dies and he's replaced. And I think that I don't think that that would have worked very well in the film. The third act in the film is not great, but it could have been much more confusing if they had stuck with the third act from the book. Well, the book, there's one climax that happens where uh, rather than going to it's kind of a uh, an amalgamation of the Mall of the Damned sequence that's in the movie and the Mall of the Damned sequence that's in the, the book, as well as a uh, a a mini climax that happens in Las Vegas where they go to see Marconi at the Luxor. And there's this whole opening of an interdimensional rift that happens at the Luxor. And yeah, just all of this stuff happens. That's kind of like the one climax that happens. And then after that in the book, it kind of takes a while for things to get going again. Cause you have this whole denouement that happens where it's like, okay, yeah. So after this, then Dave's love interest in the book is Jennifer Lopez, not the actress and where him and Jennifer hook up and then they have problems and it just goes on for a long damn time before things start to happen again. And then it kind of ties back into some of the characters from the first half of the film. Um, one character who died, this big Jim character. And it's just like, okay, so Coscarelli took a scalpel to that and just cut out all of these, frankly, boring bits. I mean, they're interesting and they work well, again, literary to, to Thomas's point earlier, but it's just like, Oh, okay, yeah, this works in a book, but in a movie, I need to see something a lot more visual than just kind of Dave sitting around moping. Luckily, that happens uh, a lot faster, and they they chop out a bunch of stuff. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this movie is 100 minutes long, not 500 pages like the book is. Well, and that's the other thing. There's also, I mean, this film was made for less than a million dollars. There's a lot of budgetary constraints that came into effect especially with the end of the film i mean the cgi in the end of the film is 
not good. You're talking about Korok himself? Korok, and then there's the green screen when they're getting ready to go into the other dimension is uh mm. is is pretty noticeable as well. So I feel like a lot of the third act of the book, like you said, kind of gets cut out because they're not going to have them going to Las Vegas in this movie. They're not going to have a lot of the, you know, it's a lot of the stuff that would have cost a lot more money for them to do. That was not on the plate for a film that's made for a sub $1 million budget. But I have to say for what they had, I like that they're using practical effects for so much of this, like the, the kind of weird spider creature that's in Dave's or sorry, John's apartment. The, um, uh, that creature that Thomas was talking about, this kind of space slug type thing. I mean, some of these, are, in the, to me, the Meat Man is a really nice effect, the way that it comes together and goes apart. And just, it's a great, especially having the turkey head is one of my favorite things. So I, I think that a lot of this stuff looks really good, but especially from a practical experience. And that, that I think, goes back to Don Coscarelli's strengths and working with the right effects houses, too. Uh, and, of course, we'll talk more about Coscarelli in the second half of the show. I've seen a couple of his movies, and it does seem like the strengths of this movie and the, the memorable parts, like you were saying, the meat monster and the practical effects – are all there because of because of the filmmaker rather than because of because of the writer. That's not so. I really enjoyed the book and I and I um I really like uh, David Wong's writing. The sort of almost charming nature of the practical effects is really great and really sticks in the mind. Having read John Dies at the End now for this episode, I'm really excited to actually read his other stuff because I I don't know why I stayed away from it. It might've been, might've been the stigma of cracked. I mean, (laughs) crack.com. First off, I loved crack magazine when I was a kid, when it was more of a, like a sub mad type magazine. And then I really liked cracked.com on the internet and they started to be i mean they were doing stuff that vice is now famous for but they were doing some really good articles and listicles and and some really well done things and then over the last couple of years it just seems like they've just gone to absolute shit so now it's like oh fuck look at what cracked is doing now i don't know what happened to them if they got bought out by somebody or there was a change in management but for a while there it was like oh great new article on crack.com and now it's like oh jesus another crack.com article get this out of my facebook feed fuck them you know i sort of got a bit bored i they seem to be spinning their wheels a bit i could be completely wrong on this but were they sort of one of the first main sort of mainstream um sites or whatever to kind of do that listicle type thing i remember you know they're they're completely ubiquitous now but even a couple of years ago it seemed like they didn't cover the internet like they do now but you could always get them on cracked and they were well done too which was the other thing and if memory serves they didn't do that horribly obnoxious thing to say the 10 best whatever things (laughs) that you've never heard of and it's just like number eight will surprise you yeah (laughs) and then coming out with like just stupid shit where it's like did you know that in Citizen Kane, Rosebud was the sled. So you mean Screen Rant? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. 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 Ten Easter eggs in this Marvel movie that you never caught before. And it's always that, yeah, well, you guys already covered it. It's just that, that completely hyperbolic writing. You can only stand so much, so many exclamation marks, so many um, you know, words that just kind of pump, supposedly pump up the excitement. 
for something before you just completely completely get turned off and never click on one of these things again it's like uh ain't it cool news just exploded and the virus went everywhere on the internet (laughs) all of those all of those excessive exclamation marks that harry knowles used over the the years just went into all these different stories (laughs) he's he's the shitload all right, on that note, let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we're going to play an interview with Detective Appleton himself, Mr. Glenn Turman, and we'll be back right after these messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hey, projection booth listeners. I'm Chris Stashew, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor. And we are the hosts of the Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. (laughs) Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack classic 2012. So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at cultureshock.com slash culturecast. They discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook, or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. 
The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. When did you first realize that you wanted to be an actor? Well, I started acting before I realized that I wanted to be an actor as a as a chance uh, happening when I was able to audition for the original production of A Raisin in the Sun in the role of Travis, which uh, uh, I played opposite uh, Sidney Poitier and Ruby Dee uh, on Broadway in 1959. So I got into that play uh uh, but I, I didn't have any intentions of being an actor. I just it was something that happened. This, we took advantage of a circumstance, and uh, there I was, uh, lucked up and got the role. And um, I, I didn't even know what an audition was at that point. I didn't even know that those other kids there were auditioning for the same role, that, trying to get the same role that I had, uh, that I, I thought I had. I just thought it was my role. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> later I found out those other kids sitting out in the hallway were trying to get the same role that I, I was trying to get. So that's how I was introduced to it. But then I, a couple of years later, it was time to go to high school. And a teacher knew that, a teacher by the name of Mr. Wilson, uh, my woodshop teacher, he knew that I had been in the play on Broadway. He guided me and counseled me to audition for the High School of Performing Arts. You know the movie Fame? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Fame uh, is, is the High School of Performing Arts, was, and that's the school that I went to. So I auditioned and got the role and was uh, entered that school. And for the first time uh, in my school years uh, up until that time, that was the first time I got an A in, in a class. I got an A in acting, and I was amazed and I said, hey, hey, maybe this is something I can do, you know. Then I uh, I pursued it and made it a, a, a set goal. So you're on Broadway before you even decide you're going to be an actor. I love it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and just to think, I mean, to be playing against Sidney Poitier, Ruby D, and then even uh, Lucas Jr. and Ivan Dixon. I mean, yeah, just man. all these heavy hitters. Oh, yeah, all the best. All the best ever. Yes, to this day. Once you graduated, what were some of those early jobs like for you? They were some great jobs that came along because of the very prolific time. You know, it was the early 60s, and, uh, you know, it, it was uh, quite a, a revolutionary period. You know, uh, Dr. King and all the, the things that were going on, and Malcolm X. And, and so plays and prolific writers were coming out, Ron Milner and Ed Bullens and, and uh, Douglas Turner Ward at the Negro Ensemble Theater. So there were a lot of plays that were, were going on. And if they had a young role for a young teenage boy, and I, because of the popularity that I was afforded as a result of A Raisin in the Sun, I was uh, sought after, you know. Many of those those productions, you know, that were landmark production at that time, Ron Milner, who was a wonderful writer. He and I became friends, and he I did most of his work uh, 
did a lot of prolific work and back to Broadway with one of his plays called What the Wine Sellers Buy at the at the uh, Lincoln Center. We did it and uh, with a wonderful, wonderful cast and directed by Michael Schultz. As you know, uh, he and I uh, work would work again in uh, the production, motion picture production this time of uh, of Cooley High. Such a classic movie. Yeah. Such a great, great yeah. film. You were really knocking it out of the park in the early 70s. I mean, just so many of these movies that you're in that I, I really enjoy, like Five on the Black Hand Side and Together Brothers. Yeah. And, of course, mm-hmm. J.D.'s Revenge. So good. Right. Sure. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know your stuff, man. I'm impressed. Thank you. Yeah, Five on the Black Hand Side was my first, was the first film that I, I was in and, and, and had a, a lead role in. And, uh, it was produced by a, a dear friend by the name of Brock Peters, a great man, great actor. Um, Brock Peters, you know, from to, to Kill a Mockingbird, uh, he co-starred opposite uh, Gregory Peck. And, uh, so, um, that that was the first piece that I, I did when I came to California in the in the on the on the screen. I came to California to do a stage play, but that was the first uh, screen piece that I'd done. Now I know you had a very big part in Cooley High, but was JD's Revenge your first lead? I, I had the lead top billing in both productions, Cooley High and in JD's Revenge. How was that working uh, to become a lead actor so quickly after you'd kind of broken into the movies? I, I didn't look at it so quickly, tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I guess it was. I had a, I had a, you know, what people don't know is that I was in the, the uh, a big, big movie uh Series, one of the first night soap operas called Peyton Place, and yeah, and Peyton Place was uh, very very popular with Ryan O'Neill and and Tippy uh, Tippy Hedren and Barbara Rush and some of the some of the big stars of that day, and it was a nighttime series, and they brought on a black family, and once again my mother was played by Ruby D and uh, and um, Judy Pace played my girlfriend, and so. We we were uh, brought into that piece, and that got a lot of attention. It was it was because it was the first time a black family had been brought into uh, a brought on as a, as a regular uh, uh, family on a series. That was quite a, a, a monumental kind of feat. There, you know, the the other thing that was going on at that time was was uh, Diane Carroll and Julia. You know, so there was. Uh, a lot of a lot of things going on, and I was fortunate enough to be a part of all of that. So it was kind of uh, a, a natural jump, you know, from being uh, noted as one of the young young uh, leading men on uh, television, and then to uh, to uh, jump to motion pictures. Can you tell me one movie that I don't think gets nearly enough attention is uh, Thomasine and Bushrod. Can you tell me what was it like working with uh, Gordon Parks and Max Julian on that? 
Well, it was Gordon Parks Jr. Junior, sorry. Gordon Parks was not, but yeah, Gordon Parks Jr. who was fantastic, and Max Julian was a dear friend and and, and his his uh, lovely lady at that time, Vanetta McGee, and we were all friends. And I had been in riding horses all my life, even in New York, you know, which is a whole nother story. But at this time, I uh, by this time now, I was in California and owned horses. And Max and and uh, Max knew that he knew that I had horses and had a small place in Malibu where I was, you know, riding and and he would come up and 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 ride and tell me that he was working on this western that we had to do, you know, and uh, he pulled it off. He did. He got us all together and we went to uh, where were we? Albuquerque, New Mexico, I believe, and we we filmed Thomasine and Bushrod. And the thing that was great about Gordon Parks Jr. was he was from Kansas, so he knew horses also. So we had a great time. You know, there was very few black men that I had met or women that I had met at that time who had uh, actually owned horses and were that familiar with them. There were those who, who would want to ride on the weekends or some, something like that, but who had it as a horses in their life as a lifestyle. Gordon and I really hit it off because of that commonality one kind of um i don't want to say it's an anomaly but it's always it's an interesting turn um in your filmography just because it was an interesting turn in this director's filmography can you tell me what was it like working with ingmar bergman ingmar bergman was my favorite director of that time i had not worked with him that's just that i loved you know his movies and his style of work uh, I always liked him, these sort of avant-garde artsy movies. You know, having grown up in Greenwich Village, you know, it gave me a different sensibility, I guess, uh, of, and kind of a way of looking at, at life. And uh, Ingmar Bergman's work sort of fit my eye in that kind of a crazy way, you know. And so I found myself going to see some of his films as a young actor, you know, trying to uh, figure out what, what art was and what it meant. I was in a struggling period. I was really had not worked for a long time. I, I had, um, I was a single dad and things were rough and, you know, I was trying to keep us afloat and keep the lights on and, and shelter over our head and food in our bellies. Me and my, my, so young, my three young kids. All of a sudden I get a call from my lawyer and he says that there's a, a package for me in his office and that Ingmar Bergman was looking for me and I was in no mood for just <laughs> 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 to put it mildly <laughs> things were not going well and this was no time for joking around. And I'd let him know this in no uncertain terms. You get my drift. <laughs> and hung up the phone. So the phone <laughs> rings again. And it's him again. And he's persists with the same thing. Ingmar Bergman is looking for you. We followed out, and it's true. He had been looking for me, and he wanted me to be in his movie, uh, opposite David Carradine and, and, and uh, Elliot Gould and Louvre Ullman, and he was going to fly me to Munich, Germany in the middle of the winter. Cold as I don't know what. And there I found myself uh, in a short while playing this strung-out jazz musician 
in uh, this Ingmar Bergman film, and I cannot believe I'm working with the great Ingmar Bergman. And I asked him, "What was it? How did he pick me? What? Where did? Where did he? he what did he know about me? You know, I never thought that. How did I get on Ingmar Bergman's radar? And it was from Cooley High. Yeah, he said that he'd seen me in Cooley High, and he knew right then that he wanted to work with me. And then this this role came up. And uh, he sent for me. Is that is that crazy? Now, had you worked out of the country before that? No, I, I had not worked abroad. Uh, uh, yes, no, I'm not. Yes, I had. Yes, I had. Uh, I had done a film called AWOL uh, with a friend of mine who's dear, a dear friend to this day. It was a small, small independent film called AWOL that we shot in Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, it was a, a small film and it didn't get much of a release. But that was my first time abroad working, yes. How did the decision for you to become a director kind of come about? I had directed some plays and, and, and uh, some, some stage works at a theater called the Inner City Cultural Center, where I then went on to teach acting for several years at this institute. This institute was responsible for me coming, was the place I came to when I came to California. I was sent, asked to come here to be a part of a production by, that was being directed by a high school teacher of mine from performing arts who went on to become a fantastic and renowned director, a woman by the name of Vanette Carroll. Now, Vanette Carroll then did a play on Broadway called Your Arms Are Too Short to box with God and, and had a wonderful, wonderful career. Asked, called for me to come to inner city. And I got to inner city and um, that was sort of like a home base where I stayed for many years. I'm still an alumni. I call myself an alumni. We are alumni of the inner city cultural center. With that directing background, Dynasty, the TV series Dynasty was, was, up and running and was one of the most popular shows uh, at that time. And I had run into uh, or met uh, um, uh, some of the people who were the head of that at that time. And uh, we were talking and they said, you know, I, I somehow came up to you direct and I said, I'd love to. And they put me with a director that I would be able to shadow the show with. And this was going to be a first for a dynasty for this, this, a black director for this major, major Aaron Spelling show. I had done many of Aaron's TV series, you know, from Mod Squad to The Rookies to on and on and on uh, most of his shows. And uh, he was known for giving uh, people a shot in other areas. George Stanford Brown who was uh, the lead on The Rookies, uh, went on to become a wonderful, wonderful director as a result of the shot and opportunity he was given through Aaron Spelling's company. This happened for me, too. I got a chance to uh, direct Dynasty. You know, I got into the union as a result of that and went on to uh, put that director's cap on to this day, having just uh, directed about seven, no, 12 shows uh for uh, House of Lies for Showtime for their webisodes. 
so often when I see you in things, especially um, when I see you on on uh, television shows, you know, I, I think of your character in like a different world or even um, I'm a Matlock fan. So even you in Matlock, you usually play this very staid character. And then to look at your filmography and realize that you tend to direct, I mean, House of Lies is definitely an exception to this, but you tend to direct a lot of comedy. Yeah, yeah I know. You've got great comic yeah. chops, and but you you play it straight so well. I don't know how that happened, that I ended up, well, you know, I, I got I to gotta blame it on, on Debbie Allen. Debbie Allen, when we were doing um, a, a Different World, gave me the opportunity to shadow her on four cameras, you know, because uh, the uh, the media of um, comedy at that time, there were four cameras with a live audience. I shadowed her when we were doing a different world. She was our producer director, and uh, she taught me the ropes of how to operate that that four ca- director's four camera shows. And so, there, of course, they were all sitcoms, you know, and uh, I got a reputation for being able to to direct the sitcoms, you know. That's what I did for quite some time. From uh, Robert Townsend's uh, Robert Townsend's show, uh, Parenthood, to uh, the Wayne Brothers, and, you know, hanging with Mr. Cooper. I did several, several of those shows that were prominent at that time. So I did want to ask you about John Dice at the end. Was that your first time working with uh, Don Coscarelli? Yes, great guy, Don. Yes, it was. What a filmmaker. Boy, he knows how to make a film. Uh, he he was. I talk about learning as a director. I learned a lot just watching him direct. How how to make a dollar ninety eight fifty become, you know, uh, fifty five hundred dollars. You know what I mean? <laughs> he could turn he could turn a dime into a a dollar real quick. You again playing it so seriously, but that movie is just such utter lunacy that I love it so much. Yeah, yeah, it's a crazy movie. <laughs> <laughs> I I had you know not been uh, aware of Don's work before being asked to to to, to be in John Dies at the End. So Don he uh, I then went and got what was the film he did Bubba Hotep yeah uh, and I said Bubba what is this what is this and I watched Bubba Hotep I said oh my god. <laughs> This guy is crazy. (laughs) 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 So so what is this going to be? This John dies in the head thing is nuts. And we went on and we did this film and I had a great time doing it. And then when it came out and we took it to Sundance, it was, you know, the closer for Sundance. And it was just the the people who turned out because, of course, Don and Bubba Hotep have such a following. I didn't realize it has such a cult following, you know. And boy, you know, did I get a whole bunch of new fans, you know, so so it was really, really, really great. What was the atmosphere like on the set for that one? It was, you know, very relaxed, very, very uh, laid back and 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 sparse, uh, very, a very sparse atmosphere. You know, the calls were early and in, in, into the morn because I think we had to wait for officers to closed down you know so there were strange calls you know we didn't we weren't shooting on a sound stage and then the, you know then the mall we shot at a uh the one of the big scenes there uh the zombie scenes at the mall you know that was an abandoned mall uh in 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 in, in, in compton 
you know. So it was a, it was a, just a, just like the movie, you know, just weird. <laughs> just, 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 what can I say? You know, it's just a, a weird atmosphere, weird movie, but fun. You know, everybody was cool and everybody was just. Hey, Took it in and, and and jumped on in. Nobody was holding back, you know. And that, so that that made it great. I was so impressed by the cast that I had to say that the the two guys who I'd never really seen before, uh, Rob Mays and Chase Williamson. Chase, yeah. Oh yeah, terrific! And you guys seem to have yeah, a, a really good chemistry. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 and I'm surprised I haven't seen more of those guys. I don't know. Maybe I'm out of the loop and they're doing some crazy stuff, you know, because I would think they would have a great following at this time, because they were just, just wonderful. I don't tend to do this too often, but you saying that line about, um, I bet you're wondering what I'm doing with this can of gasoline, that was <laughs> just classic. <laughs> Which, why I'm standing here committing, committing a felon, you know, committing a felony, right? <laughs> I can't wait for to I can't wait to work with him again. I'd love to work with him again. And and you know, it was wonderful to see how he does it. You know, to see the the way he's able to piece a story together. You know, and and the eye he has for what you need and what you don't need. You know, and and what the audience will buy if you do it like this. Then you know, it's just sleight of hand. He's just terrific. <laughs> you know? And it all works. And then at the, at the end, it's like Hogan. Voila, you know, he said, how did you do that? You know, we, we did an episode on uh, Star Wars about two years ago, and I never realized that you had a, a very strong Star Wars connection. Well, I didn't either. <laughs> I, I didn't either. You talk, you talk about the, the Lucas story of, of Han Solo. Yeah, just recently, as a matter of fact, did you see that on TMZ? I don't know if you saw that on TMZ, but they caught me coming out of, my wife and I coming out of a restaurant and someone asked me the same question that you just did for TMZ, you know. Of course, it was because uh, uh, Princess Leia for Carrie Fisher, which is unfortunate, you know. They asked that same question, and what it was is that uh, in the book of George, George Lucas's Skywalker, he says that he was going to hire a young actor, Glenn Terman, to play the role of Han Solo. He said, but then he goes on to say, but uh, it was the early 70s and uh, he didn't think, he finally came to the conclusion that uh, the country wasn't ready for an, an interracial relationship of that magnitude in the film and he didn't want to make that cause the film, uh, you know, to have any... Uh, baggage that it didn't need to carry at that time so this was news to you at the same time well yeah because we're no well no and i knew this story because someone called me years years ago and said they had just read the book and they said they called me and they said glenn i didn't know you were going to be sky uh uh Lou skywalker and i said what are you talking about you know it was another one of those what are you talking about moments, you know, like, like, like the Ingmar Bergman moment. What are you talking about? He says, yeah, I just read the book and this was years ago. So I've been trying to find George Lucas ever since because uh, I, I want to talk to either George Lucas or I want to talk to Harrison Ford 
but you know, <laughs> both of them opened portals for his career. <laughs> and I, I want to know who it was George Lucas and Toma. <laughs> but not, but they were asking me, you know, was I bitter about that? I'm not at all, you know. I, I, it, you know, it's showbiz. It was a time. I understand it. And I know what the times are. And you know how things go. But uh, it was a surprising thing, and it's, it's always surprising to people who find out. Uh, uh, this day and age, what it was like and what could have been and what is, you know. I'm curious, you have been in so many different things over the years. I mean, you've got over 100 credits uh, to your name. What have been some of your favorite things? Different things in different medias, you know. Um, of course, the things that are not mentioned in IMDb are, you know, my stage plays. And I, I, I love theater. Theater, theater is still my favorite media. I love uh, being on stage and the immediate reaction with the audiences. And, uh, you know, just finished doing a, another August Wilson play at the Mark Taper Forum just a little while ago, directed by uh, Felicia Rashad. Yeah, and, and a wonderful, wonderful cast. And uh, so, the, you know, I'm always, uh, uh, you know, I've done plays that have always uh, been near and dear to me. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, Cooley High is a motion picture. I just saw it the other night. It was, it was being pre presented at the Broad Museum here in LA. Common, you know, you know, the, the, the actor, singer Common, he hosted, uh, hosted this, the talk after the, the screening of Cooley High for Jam Pack Sold Out House at the Broad, uh, at the Broad, uh, Museum. Which was wonderful, and Ava DuVernay, who presented the whole event, her company Array, um, was the one who presented it, and the audience just ate it up, just ate it up. Here's it is, forty something years later, and people are still just loving Cooley High, you know, and I do as well, and it's not. Just because I'm in it, it's just that it's just a wonderful, wonderful film, a wonderful, wonderful story done so well by Eric Monte, who was there that evening, as well as Michael Schultz, the director. And that's the movie that kind of put me on the map, you know, um, Cooley High did. You know, that's the movie that when I went back home to the neighborhood, I was a star, you know what I mean? Uh, so, and, and, you know, that was the, you did it, you did it movie uh, for me, you know? So I'll always be beholden to that particular piece, fulfilling that part of a dream that uh, every actor has, you know? So at the same time, uh, being a part of pieces like The Wire, you know, I've been in some wonderful, wonderful productions uh, and, and, uh, on so many different uh, levels. And The Wire, of course, is one of them. You know, it's a classic, again, another classic piece of, of television. So much so that they teach it in, at Yale. They teach, they teach the, the course uh, in writing using The Wire uh, as a template, you know. And uh, David Simon was one of is one of the finest and smartest producers I've ever worked for. He just, he just was so impressive. He's a great guy and just a keen, keen eye, you know. Uh, I, I, I remember I was doing uh, a movie called The Sahara, 
and uh, with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Penelope Cruz when I was when I was asked to be a part of the show The Wire. So uh, there was a break in in the in between the movie schedule, which allowed me to get back to Baltimore to film and introduce the character of the mayor. And then I was to go back and join the company, the Sahara, in London. Well, I did this, and we were filming, and then David Simon asked if I could have the beard shaved off. He didn't want the mayor to have the, the, the goatee that I had. I said I, I, I would, of course, David, but I, I need it for the role that I'm doing uh, in, in, in England. And I've got to go back there right away as soon as we finish this. So he kind of scratched his head a little bit. And then he said, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. What we'll do next season. Get this next season. There's going to be a, a mayoral race where you're going to be racing a young opponent. Uh, and, and in that scene, uh, in that season, when you're racing, when you're racing for this, he's a young opponent. We're going to have you shave off that beard in an attempt to reinvent yourself. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Well, he stood there and came up with that on the spot. I mean, just off the top of his head, you know, he saw that far ahead. I said, how, how did you do that? You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, that's just brilliant. That's just brilliant producing and filmmaking and writing, you know. He could see that far ahead and and and, and make that happen. And sure enough, we did. He remembered and we kept it until it was time for that to happen. And that next season, I shaved it off. It's interesting. You've really seen the industry change so much from being part of Peyton Place, where you're one of the first black families integrated into a white show, to working on a different world, which was a really groundbreaking show as well, mm-hmm. to you're talking about, you know, doing webisodes of stuff and you're on The Wire, which is one of the groundbreaking television shows just in the way that it's being told. I mean, you've seen so many changes in both the medium and the media as well. Yeah, that's, and then now what's happening is just really wild. Like you said, with the webisodes, well, another wonderful, wonderful show, you know, that I was so proud to be a part of, House of Lives, and Christian Bell, that wonderful cast. Uh, Showtime and get a chance to do these webisodes where, you know, the cat, you know, when, when I did Peyton Place, the camera was so big that <laughs> the, camera, the camera literally was the size of a shopping cart. And uh, you see the size of the cameras that we're using now that, uh, on the sets. It's, it's like, what? You know, that's like a, a brownie. I had a box brownie that was bigger than the cameras. That <laughs> you see, people, people listening to this show probably you probably don't even know what a box brownie is. But uh, uh, you know, but these cameras are just so so small, and the equipment is just so different, so fast now, and and you're seeing everything is right then and there, and, and edited right then and there. And, coloration and everything is done just so automatically no it's it's you don't you don't have you know they used to have a boom operator you don't have boom operator the boom operators used to be, have to be ambidextrous because you had to they had to make the, the, the they were sitting on a on a on a, on a platform and a, a, a pole would go out with the 
with the, the microphone on the end of it. And one hand was to operate the telescopic action of the pole with the camera, with the microphone on it. And the other hand was to operate the direction in which the, the microphone was to, to point in order to catch whoever was speaking. So he had to be ambidextrous to do this, you know, and, uh, <laughs> that's a craft that's completely gone. You couldn't find, I bet you couldn't find anybody, anybody on a crew that, that could operate a boom. And I know you said you just finished up uh, doing a, a play. Where can we see you next? And we're negotiating whether I'm going back to do a play back in New York for a dear, dear friend of mine, Mr. Woody King Jr. And we're waiting to see if, if we're going to do that. There are a couple of other things on the horizon, uh, as well as uh, a couple of pieces that I'm producing. I've uh, been talking with some some heavy hitters here in, in Hollywood and back east and in different places. And uh, so it looks like you'll be seeing uh, Mr. Terman putting on his producer's hat. My least favorite hat, but to tell some of my favorite stories, well, I've got to wear that chapeau. Well, maybe you can sneak out in front of the camera now and again. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Terman. This has been wonderful. Uh, I hope I didn't talk too much. There's no such thing when it comes to radio, so this is terrific. Okay, great, great. back and we were talking about John dies at the end. Now, for a lot of folks, they know Don Cascarelli, the director, as being the director of, well, this film and of Bubba Hotep. He was riding high at this point off of Bubba Hotep, which was a surprise I can't really say hit, but it was a surprise entry. I know it played at the Toronto International Film Festival and a lot of people love this movie. That was, Bubba Hotep was 2002, John Dies at the End was 2012. He doesn't make a lot of movies, but when he does, they usually make a splash. And then what he's known for right now is Phantasm Ravager, which is, what is it, Phantasm? It's got to be Phantasm 5, because over the years, since 1979, he has been making these Phantasm movies every few years for uh what what 79 to 2016 so quite a while for me i grew up with coscarelli as being the director of the beastmaster which is one of my favorite films and it was only and people can throw rotten vegetables if they want it was only within the last few years that i finally saw my first phantasm film which I was surprised at how much i liked the first phantasm of course i was aware of the floating silver balls and of the tall man and all of these kind of things. They just kind of made their way into pop culture, but then never actually sat down and watched phantasm. 
I tried to watch Phantasm 2 right after that, and I kind of turned it off. Uh, so I haven't gone back to the Fran- Phantasm franchise. So again, people might hate me for that, but I'm really okay with that. How about you guys? What, what's your experience with, uh, with Mr. Coscarelli? How about you, Thomas? Well, can I just say before we get into this, um, I want to blow the lid off something here just for the listeners at home. I heard no promos or interviews or music just then when you said that there were going to be some brief messages. Um, (laughs) So, you know, frankly, after spending so much time listening to and enjoying uh, this wonderful podcast, um, I'm frankly appalled. And, you know, this feels like, I don't know, some kind of strange conspiracy theory that this thing doesn't really happen in real time, as I always imagined it did. Maybe the podcast that you're hearing is what you believe it is. And in reality, it's something else. Jesus Christ, the soy sauce has taken you already. It's too late. (laughs) Shit. I'm sitting here. I think you should write an expose article for crack.com. Yeah, maybe I should. Yeah, you never know. This (laughs) might be my my ticket to fame and fortune. (laughs) Um, Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, how I uncovered the podcast. Can, okay, I'll work. I'll give me some time to work on the title. Ten podcast conspiracies that will blow your mind. I think I saw Phantasm. I, I had a flatmate a couple of years ago who, you know, had a, a massive DVD collection, and so things, these kinds of things, he would frequently, you know, sort of select one of these films that we absolutely had to sit and watch. You know, I have a, a vague recollection of seeing the first the first phantasm film but yeah for me really um baba hotep is is the don coscarelli film that i apart from this one that i know somewhat well and just think is absolutely fantastic from you know first seeing it just as a in a well, vanishing nowadays in new zealand but probably everywhere else too but in a in a video store in a dvd store and just seeing the cover and of course i knew who bruce campbell was and just thinking holy shit this looks this this combination of things just i need to watch this and then actually finding out that it was a really you know poignant and exciting story yeah so so really it's it's baba hotep and then vaguely having watched the first phantasm because it's one of those films you you know you feel you should watch which is always you know not a good way to approach a film but that's me mike you and i had this conversation earlier in the week uh when we were recording another podcast that we do together and I like the idea of Bubba Hotep. I think you've mentioned it before, Mike, and I'm gonna I'm gonna cop what you said. It would have been a better Tales from the Crypt episode or a Masters of Horror episode than a full length film because it, similarly to John dies at the end, peters out in the third act of the film and kind of just takes way too long to resolve itself. It's got interesting characters, but Interesting characters in a film where interesting stuff is not happening as much, those two don't really balance each other out. So Bubba Hotep was the first Don Coscarelli film that I ever saw, and then I went back and watched Phantasm, and I haven't seen the the most recent one, but I remember enjoying all of the other ones. And Don Coscarelli himself is a pretty nice guy, from what I remember, uh, uh, they have a Texas Frightmare Weekend back uh, in Dallas once a year, and a couple years back, I was able to meet him, and he signed a Phantasm poster, and 
I took my picture with him all for free. What's that all about? What's meeting people for free at Comic-Cons, folks? Jesus Christ, that's not a thing that happens. Bubba Hotep was my introduction to Don Coscarelli, and I feel like that's the way it is for a lot of people, even people that are horror junkies that love horror, maybe kind of overlooked phantasm. Bubba Hotep was kind of the first film that I feel like a lot of horror fans saw because it's Bruce Campbell, and it's got, a, I would say, a really novel premise on its face, JFK and, and Elvis in an elderly folks' home fighting a mummy. I mean, Don Coscarelli is fantastic. Just Bubba Hotep's not great. I can't believe you guys aren't giving any love to the Beastmaster. Come on. Well, I hesitate to bring up anything to do with, how can I put this delicately, year of birth, possibly. And again, it might be a, it, it might just be a, um, a part of the world thing, but, um, cause we, when did you first see uh, Beastmaster, Mike? When and how? Believe it or not, I saw it theatrically when I was 10 uh. years old. And then after that, I saw it on cable on uh, the movie channels incessantly. And this was before, who was it, like TBS or TNT? One of those channels seemed to buy the rights for it and just play it endlessly every weekend was you know beastmaster weekend for a while there more than the shawshank redemption believe it or not and yeah so every time it's on tv i'm all about it i mean that was my introduction to uh rip torn so many great things Uh, of course mark singer you know nobody can get enough mark singer in their lives um you know that's that's what made me a fan of uh if you could see what i hear but yeah, that goes some way to explaining it. New Zealand, um, you know, I don't in any way think to speak for my entire nation. We we sort of missed out on the on this this whole is it cable television thing? Um, <laughs> it yeah, uh, it's just like Apu Nahasapima Pedalon, um, his wife, when she's like weekends. Yeah, no. Ca- um, Cable, it, it, it's never been a thing here. Like, we only got Netflix, you know, in terms of getting in, and I guess that's a whole different thing, streaming. But, um, yeah, to basically just babble on about a really simple point. Didn't happen here. So it was video stools or nothing up until very, very recently. I've never seen Beastmaster, Mike. Are you surprised? I bet you're not. Uh, no, I'm not. Yeah. Have you seen the sequel? The, not, uh, I've, the I've Beastmaster seen, in Time movie? I've, I've seen none of them. So. I've never actually seen the sequel. I've only seen the first one. I've never seen any yeah. of them. And- <laughs> well, I tried to get Don Coscarelli for this episode, and I was just uh, looking at my email. So I got a response, it looks like, in October of 2016 that he was fine doing an interview. And then every – it looks like about every six weeks after that, I would say – Okay, how's your schedule looking? Can we put together a time to talk? After about eight months of that, I just kind of gave up. So, uh, yeah, so no Mr. Coscarelli on this one. And then there was another guy who's in the movie, and I won't say that whoever you're thinking of when I say this is not that person, because he was only (laughs) in the movie for like a split second. So it wasn't a Doug Jones. It wasn't any of these other guys. This is just a dude that's in the movie. Who's been in other Coscarelli films. I had talked to him on Facebook about coming on the episode. He was absolutely fine with that. And then whenever the last, uh, so I guess it was probably late last year, early this year, I posted something about like none of the Oscar 
uh, nominated films, um, not none of them, but a lot of the Oscar nominated films had yet to open in Detroit. So it was impossible to see them. So thank goodness that it is screener season and they are all available on the torrent sites. Oh my God, this guy pretty much, he, he just exerated me on Facebook uh, publicly and then was privately just going on and on and on about how much I'm killing Hollywood. And I'm just like, really? You're the reason why films aren't getting funded anymore, that things aren't getting made and just, yeah, basically laying this at my feet as far as what a terrible person I am and that uh, I'm ruining the Hollywood model of filmmaking. So, uh, I kind of uninvited him after that. Uh, so, but I was, uh, really glad that I got to speak with, uh, Glenn Turman on this because, uh, as you heard in the interview, this guy's been <laughs> in a ton of stuff and, um, a lot of, a lot of great stuff. So, I mean, yeah, I was really glad to be able to speak with him. Uh, yet another episode where I tried to get Clancy Brown, but, Still no Clancy Brown. One of these days, hopefully Clancy Brown will be on this episode. We'll be on this show, but uh, still not. Hey, you didn't come on to talk about being the Kurgan, not talking about being Marconi. So one of these days, maybe when I do like one of the SpongeBob films, he'll come on and he'll <laughs> do the whole thing as Mr. Krabs, which would be fantastic. Indeed it would. Don Coscarelli is one of the more, I would say, underrated horror directors. I mean, he's not Sean Cunningham. He's not Wes Craven. But I think he needs to be mentioned in that same conversation of people as like, I would say, quote unquote, pioneers of horror, especially like 80s horror. Granted, Coscarelli didn't have a whole lot of movies coming out in the 80s, but I mean, he created his own franchise, that franchise. He's still making films with it, you know, into the 2016 into last year. So there's something to be said for that. Yeah, it's like you don't see Wes Craven still making Freddy movies today. Jesus Christ, Mike. Holy. Whoa. Oh. Jeez, I thought my attempts at humor were bad. Your 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 joke should have been you don't see Sean Cunningham making movies anymore, which is the case because he doesn't. So is it Kathy Griffin holding a bloody head level of funny? Ah, uh. was that funny? No. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Wings of Desire. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Chris and Thomas. Thomas, what is keeping you busy in the shaky aisles, sir? All right. So in the shaky aisles, um, I am currently working uh, as a sort of caretaker for New Zealand's oldest prison, as bizarre as that sounds. Um, It's no longer in operation, but I'm starting up a short film series here talking about some of the strange stories some of the hauntings some of the sort of gory history of the place um yeah so that's that's sort of my sort of little thing that i'm getting started on Mm. and chris how about you what's new in your world well as always we're doing culture casts every week we uh we just wrapped our wonder woman podcast so go listen to that it uh i'm gonna probably retroactively give my opinion here it was probably better than every other dc film shocking said no one you can check me and my co-host eric out we talk movies once to twice a week depending on if there's anything worth watching in the theaters over at cultureshock.com forward slash culturecast and on all ios android and even zune well maybe not zune but you can find the culture cast anywhere that podcasts are sold now, I'm curious, you say that it was the best DC film so far. You're not counting Swamp Thing in that. Uh, I, uh, excuse me, DCEU? Excuse me. Let me push my glasses up. Uh, it's, better, it's probably better than Green Lantern, a movie that everyone would like to forget. I feel like I should say something because Tim Weta Morrison was in that, but um, no, there's, there's, there's very little to defend about that. You can barely tell that it's Tim Weta Morrison, though. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, he was also in the prequel Star Wars films, so yeah, of, I mean, yeah. the indefensible nature is he's yeah. he's he's blotted his copybook pretty badly since um once we're warriors. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but you have Taika Waititi and you know the Flight of the Concord guys, so oh, absolutely, we we you know we we do all right, and there's um that other actor who who gets called upon to play every sort of non-white ethnicity. He he's in Fear the Living Dead. Um, oh, Cliff Curtis. Yeah, the versatile Cliff Curtis. So yeah, he can and, play. You know, he can play Middle Eastern terrorists in Arnold Schwarzenegger films. Well, guys, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late and I will be running late on this episode. I guarantee it. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.